Hello, everyone. Welcome to Terror Talk. Welcome. 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 Yes, we're going to Bavaria, Germany today, so that was appropriate. Yes. As the title suggests, we are going to talk about Annalise Michel, who was born in Germany, September 21st, 1952, to Anna and Josef Michel. We're going to talk about possession today. It's true. We're going to talk about the possible possession and exorcism that Annalise endured and her perspective on it, of course, because we also have, we, not not we, but the public has lots of recordings of the exorcisms, her diary, many books written on it by people of the cloth and others. And we both watched, of course, because you just got to enjoy the exorcism of Emily Rose, which is a really solid exorcist movie if you've never seen it and one of laura linney's best performances so in my good. opinion oh my god i mean she's I always right. good but she was great in this. agreed she was really good and dexter's uh sister wife plays emily rose there you go yeah me sister meaning this actress was the sister on on dexter and wife in real life so and she plays it and she was very young in this role too very and i thought young. she did a, a really great job she was actually the age that annalise was when all of this happened when she filmed that movie so i thought she did a great job did you know much about this before you i don't know thought about it at all not much. I knew little things, but not yeah. to the depth. When I watched the movie, I'd realized I had never watched it all the way through. Okay. So, and I know that the movie's like a fictionalized Definitely. version of the story, but. There's bits and pieces, yeah. you know, how they do. They collapse time and move things around. And I think it also came out at a time where there was like possession movies coming out every 30 seconds and it was definitely one of the better ones and i think that yeah was, like it rose to the top because of that because i i can't i i got a little jaded after a while i'm like <laughs> the, the devil again the devil it's like the pregnant woman in horror oh movies it's like we get over that story of something's going on with the baby yeah she's pregnant and yes. it's like okay can we have another female themed horror movie that doesn't have to do with pregnancy for sure and grief of course is a massive yeah. theme and and that's not as tired to me because i think it's such a human condition but yeah the pregnant ladies birthing demons or killing people or whatever <laughs> i'm really over sometimes it. they're all in one i know <laughs> there's been a lot of them this year all right annalise she was born in bavaria in germany in a little tiny tiny town called libfling Libelfling, you know, not German. So I wonder if they had good don't pretzels. Know. Oh, golly. <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> but we do think of Bratz beer and pretzels. <laughs> we do. <laughs> Germany. And beautiful vistas, honestly. Such a beautiful country. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Both Anna and Josef came from that area or areas surrounding it for many generations. So this was a family that was very much embedded in this area and had a long history there. So Annalise was baptized Catholic, and they lived in a two-story house in Klingenberg, which is right near there. It's, it's all right around this small area in Lower Bavaria. Yosef owned and operated a sawmill and reportedly was very hardworking and provided a comfortable life for his family. Annalise had an older sister, Martha, that died at the age of eight, actually, after complications from a kidney tumor removal. I feel like all of these stories we talk about... There's always a dead sibling. There's a dead sibling. That's so crazy. That's true. It's definitely a theme. 
Annalise also had three younger sisters, Gertrude, who was two years her junior, Barbara, who was four years younger than her, and Roswitha, Roswitha? Roswitha, who was five years her junior. And Anna, the mom, spent most of her time actually working with Yosef at their sawmill as she spent her time prior to them getting married working in an office for her father's sawmill. So you see a lot of these professions, a lot of these trades, carpentry, construction was in his family lineage, and then they just kept doing that. And it was actually in her family's lineage as well. And you find this a lot of places where there's small towns, small towns of generations and upon generations of people, where everybody's just kind of in the family business, and that's how they make a living. Anna's mother, Annalise's grandmother, was very religious. And because both parents were working, she spent a lot of time helping out, helping educate Annalise in religion, take, helping taking care of the kids. And as you can see, this was just a hardworking family and all the family members were in town. So it takes a village type of deal. Yosef was also raised by a religious family who at one point wanted him to become a priest and sent, sent him to secondary school for that. Because he had three aunts, actually, who became nuns. And so that was also part of the culture. It was just a family tradition, basically. What I was reading is it was a family tradition for each generation to have people that had some kind of ecclesiastic career. There had had to have been a lot of guilt in this family. Yeah, maybe so. You know, I grew up Catholic, and it's like, that's just, it should just be called guilt, yeah, for sure. And I'm I'm also baptized Catholic and guilt my and shame. Years. Those those are our pillars. Yeah, and on my father's side, my grandparents are Catholic. So I I also understand yeah. the guilt theme mm-hmm. going on there. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, Yosef was not to become a priest because he, although he did very well in school, he really struggled with Latin. That's the language that a lot of religious texts are written in, and so that is a basic fundamental piece of of doing that job, basically. And so his mother did ultimately agree to let him switch to a trade school, and that's how he got into the sawmill stuff and construction and carpentry and all that. However, at the age of 22, he was drafted and fought in World War II, as many young men did. And at one point, he was even taken prisoner by Americans, but he was released in June of 1945. And then he went back to school to study construction and took over his family's business. Dad was really known to very much keep emotion on the inside. And not only is that cultural and also cultural with regards to gender, cultural with regards to like his family makeup. Mm-hmm. He's a war. He was in the war. We can only imagine what happened to him while he was a prisoner of war or during war. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. He married Anna in 1950 and two years later, Annalise was born. Like I said, they had an older, she had an older sibling that was born right before that. So as soon as they got married, they started having kids and they had five kids right in a row with the eldest Dying at the age of eight. Another thing, before the age of five, Annalise had the mumps, the measles, and scarlet fever. Jesus Christ. <laughs> she was even held back. No pun intended. I know, right? <laughs> Holy baby Jesus. She was held back a year in school because of this. She started a year late because she was such a sickly kid. 
her mother had, you know, her mother talks about being weakened by hunger during the war times and felt that that was one of the reasons why Annalise was so sickly and that her oldest was so sick early on. But she definitely blamed her weakened immune system and and the hunger that she experienced during the pregnancy in not creating like a robust immunity in Annalise. So she just spent all this time sick. Whether that's true or not, that's just a mother's guilt. Not sure. Makes logical sense. Medical trauma is a thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. If she attributes some of that to it, then why should I not? Like, makes sense to me. By the time Annalise had her first communion, which for those of you who don't know, usually happens around the age of five or six, she was smaller than her peers, but becoming more healthy by that point. So again, she was real sick between birth and five, and then she started to get healthier. She ended up being smaller and thinner, but she was getting healthier. And then by 1965, when she was about 13, she was similar to her peers in size, and she was doing all the natural things of her age. Uh, School, friends, doing well. Her mother was pretty religious to the point of belief systems, right? So a couple of things I want to definitely point out that I think are relevant to Annalise's story and the way things transpired are the belief systems that she herself had that came from her experiences and of course her familial experiences. And one of their core beliefs was that people cannot atone for their own sins Others have to suffer for them to be saved. Basically Mm. like how saints suffer for us to be saved. Right. So that's a distinction, right? I just want you guys to hear that that's a distinction. We can't suffer for our own sins is is the culture there. Others have to suffer for us for us to be forgiven. So, yes, <laughs> there has to be a Jesus amongst us, basically, for those of you who are familiar with Christianity. just become Christianity. a con- container of pain for people. And, and what a tormenting... Right. Wow. So, if you think about that, and you think if that that's the mom's core belief and probably gotten from her mother and her family and her culture and the people around them... You can imagine how she might have made her children suffer in what we would say is an abusive way today. Oh, for sure. Using religion as... Yeah. Right? Now, there are stories about her having them, you know, sleep on wooden mats so that they suffer enough so that everyone can be, you know, for the culture, for the community that type of thing that we all have to suffer some so that everyone can live and be healthy and blah, blah, blah. Like that's just the core belief. Annalise was a good student. She sang, she played instruments. She was liked by her teachers. She went to church on Sundays. Of course, sometimes they went during the week as well as a lot of religious families do. There were traditional heteronormative roles in the family with Yosef making decisions for the family. However, as I said before, Anna, the mom, worked in the office of the business her, and had always worked, worked in her father's business, worked with Yosef in their family business. But here's the thing. It was very common for women in her town 
to get commercial training as Anna did and to work. This was a hard working, it was normative to be hard working no matter your gender. So that's just different than sometimes when we talk about quote unquote heteronormative role, gender roles where mom's home with the kids or whatever and dad's off working. That That's not what we're talking about. That's kind of like an American 1950s concept. That's not this, so don't get it twisted. Mm. It was common for women in her town to get either commercial training, as Anna did, or if they were really good in school and they excelled, they would either become nuns or school teachers. Those were the things actually to aspire to if you were smart. Wow. Yeah. I wouldn't be a good nun. No? No. How come? Well, first of all, I I get too claustrophobic in that shit mm. they have to wear. The outfit's too tight. And I... I just, Around the neck and all that. Oh, God. <laughs> it just, I don't, I don't like the dress. Well, even when you look at the Catholic Church, not to digress yeah. too much into yeah. that, like priests had so much freedom. <laughs> where like the nuns were just always in a space of like, I don't know. A little tight. Torment. A little tight, head covered. Because, uh, you know, not supposed to be in any way sexualized. So everything is hidden, hair. Feet, right. arms, but even like bodies. their their daily service was just yeah, you know I don't know. <laughs> this is Kathy's opinion. <laughs> this isn't like contemporary times where it's like the little women at home having babies culture. This no. is not like at the spa. <laughs> no, on social media, definitely not raising children, which is very very difficult. This was family-oriented raising children. This is mom and dad are busting ass. Grandma's taking care of the kids. As soon as the kids can participate in work or helping with anything they do, this is that kind of culture. The children said their morning prayers. They observed the family's traditions. They were, quote-unquote, good kids. There's a lot of hard work going on. Oh, yeah. This is so that here's here comes I'm going to highlight another core belief that's really important for the what materializes is I want to make it really clear that culturally this family believed not only did they believe that others suffer for your pain talk about community building um, is they also <laughs> believed <laughs> that demons are fallen angels who hate God the, yeah, the Lucifer, the ancient mythology mm -hmm. of Satan, which is that Satan was a fallen angel who hates God. But the demons, all demons are fallen angels who hate God and are locked in an eternal combat with those of the heavenly host, meaning like Annalise, whoever's, whoever's being possessed. They are locked in eternal combat with those of the heavenly host that remained faithful. Wait, to make that more colloquial. Annalise, let's say she was possessed. Uh huh. Their belief would be that whoever was possessing her was a demon that fell from grace. Got it. Who hates God and is in combat with her as a faithful host. Got it. So the possession is the demon fighting their very law abiding host. Got it which makes sense with what's going on. But this is their belief, so it's important to know sure. that this is Annalise's belief. Right. This is what she believes. She talked about it all the time. It's mm -hmm. all throughout her journals, all the different things. All right. So with that said, the onset of her symptoms 
happened around the age of 16. She blacked out in the middle of class and had a seizure. Some reports say she was convulsing and seizing, and other reports say that she was also in a trance and not aware of her surroundings. And she ended up having no side effects, hypothetically, at least nothing that was reported from this incident. Both of those reports are congruent with what seizures can be. Seizures can be convulsing, but they can mm-hmm. also be just someone looking like they're in a trance. A full year later, at the age of 17, she has a second seizure, but this time she's in her bed in the middle of the night at home, and she feels like she can't move, like she's being pinned to the bed, and it happened for so long, and it was so frightening for her that she ended up wetting the bed, Mm. and after that incident, as it was the second time that it had happened, she was taken to a neurologist and diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. I believe that this is what Richard Ramirez was also Mm. diagnosed with, the Night Stalker. Okay. Yeah. This particular kind of epilepsy is very common. It causes seizures. It causes loss of memory. It also causes visual and auditory hallucinations, which all of which she was having, those symptoms she was having at the time. So she was given medication. Those who wholly believe in the, in the possession story believe that sort of try to say like the oh the meds did nothing you know they didn't cure blah 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 but listen (laughs) she was able to graduate high school she was able to start college and she had some good functioning in her relationships Mm -hmm. so although her symptoms continued something was working she was thriving in some way she was able to function yeah but she, you know, she was still having hallucinations. She was still having some of her symptoms. But as we see with psychiatric medication now, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know how to diagnose temporal lobe epilepsy or any of that. But I do know that in psychology, it's often just to take the edge off of symptoms. That's right. And there are people with psychotic disorders even who eat on medication still hear voices and things like that. So it doesn't always eliminate yeah, it, it definitely makes it more manageable, usually, unless yeah. they've only started after 40 or something and there's been a ton of kindling in the brain. And then, yeah, sometimes it doesn't help Or at it all. could change the severity of the message of the voice. So rather than, mm-hmm. you know, I'm command, go, yeah. command auditory, which is our most violent, if it's telling you to go kill somebody, it may just be people whispering in the back or something like that. You're a piece of shit. Yeah, the awful self-hatred stuff that mm-hmm. comes... So that's something to consider. She did continue having hallucinations and seizures, but it seemed like just due to what we know about her functioning that was helping somewhat. Then this girl, my goodness, she contracts tuberculosis and pneumonia. Jesus. <laughs> I can't. She's had every sickness in the book since being born. Seriously. How did she not make it through a possession? It's awful, She had right? everything else. I mean, considering what she went through, this is a hearty, this is a hearty lady. So she spends weeks and weeks in a sanatorium getting better, which is which is what they used to do when you're recovering from a big illness, is you would stay in a sanatorium. And keep in mind, everyone, this is pre-antibiotics. It took a really long time to heal from stuff like this, and lots of people died from those illnesses. Okay. She's still not dead, though. She's had all the things. I'm telling you. So, but here's where it shifted to. When she came home from the sanitarium, her family says she was just a different person. 
She was irritable. She was angry. The voices had become very mean, very punitive, and very abusive to her. She saw demonic faces everywhere. She started to have an aversion to religious objects, but she did read her Bible daily still. She started to not like want to be near religion. This is this is part of that possession theory because that's what exorcists, exorcism folks will tell you that that's one of the symptoms is like being a, a averse to religious objects. Okay. So things started to deteriorate quite a bit from this point. And through a series of events, lots of different things happened. Again, like, I don't think I said this at the beginning, but this is an overview of this case. There are many books, many details, so much you could dig your teeth into about this, which, which I definitely have. And, and I, cause I'm really interested in stories like this, but things deteriorated through a bunch of different events. Annalise herself became of the opinion that she was possessed and stopped taking her medication. So she stopped the medication. Are you saying that she believed that the medication was contributing to that? She believed that the medications weren't working. Okay. And so by default, because of her belief system, which is why I highlighted it earlier, that she must be possessed by demons. Got it. I mean, that's the logical. Because meds weren't work. She felt the meds weren't working. So what do we do? We come up with like our next flawed theory. We see this in psychology a lot. Like, oh, the meds aren't making me perfect. (laughs) The meds aren't making me great. I should stop them. So I'll stop them when normally it's really keeping things at bay Mm -hmm. and it is making things better. It's just not the way you want them to be. Right. So hypothetically, that was what was happening. But she, she decided to take herself off of the medication. She and her family repeatedly then tried to get the church to perform an exorcism on her. And they kept, this is all really relevant to the trial. So just keep in mind, like the belief system, it, her and her family repeatedly tried to get the church to perform an exorcism, but they kept the church specifically kept turning her down saying that she needed to seek medical help. Okay. Just keep in mind that she had two different seizures in two years. Her family took her directly to a neurologist. She got diagnosed. She got put on medication. Then later when she got sick, she went to a sanatorium. She decided to take herself off medications. She decided she wanted an exorcism. The church said, nope, you need medical help. So people were directing her to medical help. For context, and I think this is important, it was 1975. The Exorcist had just come out in Germany the year before. Oh, okay, yeah. That was 74, yep. Yep. So you can imagine how many people had become, quote-unquote, possessed by demons. You thought you were just watching it 10 years (laughs) later as a kid. (laughs) And were bombarding the church to get exorcisms. Oh, my God. I'm sure cities were filled with people just going insane. I know. Everyone with mental illness was at the church saying it's a demon. All this is left out of the movie. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, they don't, there's no way to bring it up. Yeah. But this is more documentary shit. (laughs) No, but it makes you, it adds more context. I think so too. Yeah. However, finally, this guy named Father Alt, Ernst Alt, believes her possession and gets permission from his bossy boss, whose name was Joseph Stangle, to have this guy, Father Renz, perform an exorcism. 
All right. So by this time, her symptoms had gotten so much worse because time had gone by. She was fighting to get an exorcism and couldn't. So more time had gone by. By this time, she's 23, 22, 23, something like that. Her symptoms were thus. She was eating spiders off the floor, which is in the movie. Okay. She would rip her clothes off Why all not? the time and bark like a dog and crawl under the tables at home. She bit the head off of a dead bird. Oh, God. She licked her own urine off the floor. <clears throat> and even more awful than that, f 400 times a day, and this is in the movie too, she would slam her knees down over and over into the praying position. 400 times a day so much so that she broke both her kneecaps and damaged oh, all the tendons God. around her knees but she wouldn't stop she they couldn't they had this is why they would have to restrain her this is why you know it might have it might seem abusive to the contemporary mind but if your kid's doing that they were restraining absolutely her. they were trying to keep her from doing all of these things to herself Breaking her legs. Breaking her legs. She would mutter in Latin all the time, but keep in mind she knew Latin. It's I not, mutter in Latin. It's Of course you do. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have a lot of the same things I'm going on here. I'm a lot of similarities. <laughs> I'm feeling like I relate to Elise. But this is not like Reagan in the movie, okay? Reagan didn't know Latin. <laughs> and neither... Oh, no, Emily Anna, Rose did. A, yeah, Annalise yeah. knew Latin. Annalise knew Latin and a bunch of other stuff. This isn't like she was muttering in a language she didn't know. But it's also widely, in horror movies, talked about as the language of the de devil. So let's go with that. That's reality, right? That's data. Horror movies. It's so sure. Catholic. I know. I know. They all learn Latin. So why wouldn't the demons be speaking Jeez. in Latin? The first exorcism is September 24th, 1975, three days after her 23rd birthday. Without going into a ton of detail at the time, Annalise underwent 67 exorcisms in 10 months. Oh, my God. Father Wren stated that each exorcism lasted between one and four hours. She was in ha having an exorcism one to two times a week. She would communicate during these exorcisms in a low growling voice, and Father Wren learned that there were six demons she identified as possessing her. Again, this is by her, per her report. In the 67, so it was between 67 hours and whatever, 120 hours that he spent with her doing this stuff. So he heard a lot of shizzle from her. She was supposedly possessed with six different demons named Cain from Cain and Abel. You may be familiar. Not Cain Hodder? No, not Cain oh. Hodder, unfortunately. Okay. Although that would be kind of brutal. He'd be beating her up probably. Oh, God. I mean, from the inside. Fuck, it would be. <laughs> Not that actually Kane Hunter would do that. Come on, you guys. Uh, Judas from the Bible. Hitler. Nero. Jeez. Fleischmann, who was actually a, local, a locally disgraced priest. And Lucifer himself. So those were her six demons. And there are real recordings of the exorcism that survive today and i i do want to play a little bit of i think there's like hours and hours of the exorcism not not all of the exorcisms and not the last exorcism unfortunately but many of the the priests recorded and that's very typical they want they they do that of course to protect themselves but also to have 
evidence. Can you imagine this just like background music in your house? You want some? I, I, I'll, I'll direct you towards it. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Hours upon hours. <laughs> 67 <laughs> times four. Okay. I'm going to play some of this for you, okay? <sighs> I'm going to play like a minute here and a minute there. We'll uh, just, I just want you to be able to hear what it sounds like. All right, here we go. So you can see or hear how disturbing that is. That's got to hurt your throat after a while. Right? It's just disturbing. She growls and of course. Hours at a time. Hours, hours. There's hundreds, there's not hundreds. There's a couple hours that you can find readily online of this kind of material, of the actual recordings. And I tell you, when you listen to it for a while, it gets, it's pretty disturbing. Now, obviously she's speaking in German or she's speaking in Latin. He's speaking in German. So if you don't speak those languages, a lot of it, you're not going to actually understand. It's more about the affect of the growling, the anger, the, the breathing that, and it just goes on and on and on. And she says all kinds of things. She tells him who she's possessed by. She's telling him, saying awful things to him. You know, everything we kind of see in the movies or that Annalise might've seen in the exorcist Mm -hmm. is happening. Mm -hmm. That's really disturbing. It feels like there's a, it's rhythmic. Like it's the same sort of sound over and over. And I know she's, Mm -hmm. she's, speaking a language I don't speak so mm-hmm. I don't know if she's saying different things but it feels very trance like in the sense yeah you know? I feel like some of it is I feel like because it would go on for so long you know when you see there are videos out there that like people have done where they translate what she's saying and all of that into English for those of you who are English speakers and she's saying a bunch of different stuff all kinds of all kinds of things it's 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 just an interesting thing to to look into if this topic interests you or if you are of the mind to sort of want to make a decision of whether or not she was possessed or whether or not she was mentally ill or some variation on both. Also during this time, again, during these nine, 10 months where she endured 67 exorcisms, she also began to starve herself. She 
became of because she would have a lot of lucidity as well during these times. She would be possessed, then she would be lucid. She would be possessed. She would be lucid. All this kinds of stuff. So she began starving herself, and she began identifying as a person who was suffering for others' pain. Again, that that saint mentality that we were talking about before. She would became physically unrecognizable during this period. She weighed about 80 pounds and she was starving herself. It wasn't that they were starving her. She was, she was in her own home with her family and the priests. And they had, from what I've read and seen and, and read from other accounts, they wanted her to get better. They were offering her food. They were offering her water. She was not, this was not a case of abuse. It's like self-neglect. Yeah. So the family and the priest were operating under her requests, and she was actually requesting exorcisms. She wanted to feel better. She wanted to expunge the demons because she also felt that if she did, that that would be helping everyone. She believed that she was a saint for suffering for other people's sins by housing demons and going through these exorcisms. This is what she was doing as her participation in her religious beliefs. So the final exorcism took place on June 30th, 1976, nine months after the first exorcism. Again, she was bruised, exhausted. She had broken kneecaps. She could barely walk without assistance. She was starving, so she was gaunt, And the next morning after this last exorcism, she was found dead and it was deemed that she had died from malnutrition and dehydration. Wow. She had all those fucking illnesses and she dies of malnutrition and dehydration. (laughs) Like, Jesus, this is, she's such a tough young lady. Tough from birth, really. God. Annalise's parents, Father Renz and Father Alt are all charged in her death. And taken to trial. And they are found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to six months in jail, although those sentences were suspended and they were given three years of probation instead. Don't go out and uh, starve any more of your children that become possessed by demons. Oh my God. Mm. I mean, it's a whole other story than you get from the movie. The movie makes it look like she was, she had gone through one possess. I mean, one exorcism. Yeah. And Which this you can't, is, yeah, this is different. And you wonder over like 67 times in a matter of those months, mm-hmm. the delusional, if we're, if we're looking at this with yeah. no, no disrespect to no. the church or anything, but although even Catholic priests will tell you now, mm-hmm. you know, these aren't, they're, they're so rarely done because they right. were so overused to think about how, how much, someone can convince themselves of something. And then when you have a community of people who are feeding into that psychosomatic, absolutely, that's what comes up for me Yeah, is like everything that she was experiencing was psychosomatic. Yeah. And they were just witnessing it over and over and over again. And you can, from a human perspective, there's a lot of ways to look at this. It's like, I can see how they would get caught up in this. Her acting the way she was and going along the way. And what we know about mental health that's different from 50, 60 years ago. I get it. But it's, uh, 
But still that over and over, you'd yeah. think like. Difficult. Mm. I mean, so, he, well, and here's the thing. Okay. Annalise clearly stated and believed that she was chosen to suffer for other sins and that she had been possessed by demons. And there are, is a whole camp on that side, believing that this was a demon possession, that those audio recordings are proof of that, that she was a saint, that was what was happening and that she was possessed. There's also a camp that she was a victim of negligence by her parents and these priests. You can think about it either way or both ways because if you think about it as she was a victim of negligence, then you sort you pretty much have to embrace the fact that her medical conditions, her temporal lobe epilepsy and her possible schizophrenia may be whatever. But here's the thing. So I'm not a medical doctor. So let's think about temporal lobe epilepsy. So right. It, again, it causes seizures in the temporal lobe. The temporal lobe houses the encoding of memory, auditory information, processing language and emotions. We are not always aware when we have injuries of this nature. We're not always aware during the seizure or not. Sometimes we are, sometimes we aren't. It's a really common form of epilepsy. It's rare for medications to actually cure it entirely. It can manage it. It can help relieve some symptoms. It can also cause scarring on the brain mm -hmm. over time. Mm -hmm. When they did her autopsy, there was no scarring on her brain. Was it negligence by the autopsy-er? I don't know. Why would there be? But, I mean, I don't want to call someone's integrity into question just because, like, the theory didn't wear out that there would be scarring. Could have been a TBI. She was very sick when she was little. Lots of things happened, happen now and back in the day, especially, where kids could fall and hit their head, get some kind of TBI, no matter what was happening, a TBI when she had the seizure when she was 16. I don't know. You know, there's a lot of ways to go with that. There's also something called Gershwin syndrome that can cause hyper-religiosity and irritability, which is part of what mm. was going on for her. That's a bad combo. Right? There are studies that talk about how people with epilepsy have a higher likelihood of having schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. Delusions, hallucinations, disorganized thinking and speaking. And it works the opposite way too, where schizophrenics are more likely to have seizures. So that's in the mix. There's also research around a risk of experiencing religious delusions in those who are strongly religious and schizophrenic compared with those who had no religious background. So the interplay of religion and schizophrenia, meaning the quality of delusions and hallucinations, which we, we often deal with the quality of what someone hallucinates or what their delusions may contain during their illnesses can span a variety of things. We definitely see themes across different kinds of hallucinations and delusions. I certainly do. Mm -hmm. 
it's qualitative information on my part. That's not a quantitative research thing. It's just what I've experienced in my practice. But there is this research that bears out that if you are already very, very religious and you become schizophrenic and you have delusions and hallucinations, that they will most than likely be religious in nature. Makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And luckily, the research bears that out, which is always nice. Uh, there was no cure for epilepsy or schizophrenia at the time. So nothing was working for her, which is understandable that she would turn to what she believed instead. Then she considers possession and is ultimately, re that is, think about this too, that is ultimately reinforced by her family, her church, her priests, her friends, her community. So what do we know about when everyone treats you like you're possessed or mentally ill over a sustained period of time? Most people will begin to believe that about themselves sure. and they will embody it. Just like anything else. Whether if they you're, are or not. If you're being told something about your character, about your personality, mm -hmm. about whatever it might be. We will live up to that if we hear it over and we know that how this influences children, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. So we think about that from a parenting standpoint, the, what we're telling kids about themselves early on plays out well into their adult life. You betcha. I mean, our brains are very powerful. They can convince us of any number of things. Do you guys believe in the power of positive thinking? Do you believe in the secret? Do you believe in manifesting what you want and need out of life? Do you believe in goal setting and achieving those goals? All of those things are your brain convincing you that you have things, can do things, can achieve things. That's, it works the other way around as well. So she stopped eating and drinking. Also, that can cause serious side effects of hallucinations when you stop eating and drinking. So Absolutely. her symptoms getting worse were compounded by that. If she was actually possessed why didn't the 67 exorcisms help? Right. Well, and after about, I don't know, 15, let's pick a number. Yeah, whatever, 10. You five, thought another 20. 50? Let's gonna do work? 10 and let's, we need another 57. We need before. another 52. <laughs> so that's the thing where negligence can come in, right? Oh, God. And this, I think, is a core reason why they were found guilty is because, you know, did you need 67 exorcisms to think maybe it wasn't fucking working? Like maybe you should stop. Now I get from the parents' perspective because the parents and the two priests were put on trial and received that sentence. I get where the parents are scared, terrified, watching all of this. I can't even imagine being a first person witness to all of this. Okay. So they keep going because they're supported by the church, it's ingrained in their beliefs for generations and generations. And it is the responsibility of those priests, I believe, to say, okay, we're, this isn't... They have to hold the more objective stance than a family member, in my sure. opinion. Anyway, apparently 67 exorcisms doesn't work, so take that information too. 68 would have. Yeah, the 68th was really where we were going with that. So yeah. anyway, that is the story. The That's what I'm going to share of the overarching story of the real Emily Rose and Lisa Michel. Oh. So yeah, so you found that a lot different than the movie, huh? Well, I mean, the, the movie... <laughs> Very different. The, the movie is a movie shares a lot of the you know the argument between the epilepsy and the possession and a lot of trial it's really a, a crime drama yeah <laughs> it also takes place at a different time in history yep. so the the movie the exorcist wasn't as relevant because 
based on the movie it had come out, you know, decades before. But this definitely, there's no no way to not argue negligence, even if she was possessed. Because right. like you exactly. said, clearly it wasn't working. No. And it, and it could have been all of the things, right? We just, we live, we live in that world as well, where, okay, so perhaps possession exists. Perhaps that mythology is real. Well, to me, it's no different than, let's say it was epilepsy and we're giving her yeah. a drug that doesn't work. You don't keep giving someone a drug that doesn't work. Yeah, but this is for epilepsy. It's like, okay, but it's not working, right? It's like, well, this is for taking demons out. Okay, but it's not working. <laughs> yeah. Like, so to me, why it's didn't the we same, give up on that? It's the same argument. It's I like I understand that this is what you do to take demons out, but clearly it isn't working, and it's actually killing her. Well, and it's Annalise's flawed logic. She's right. the one that took herself off of medication because they weren't working. They kept. They say, and it's documented, well documented, that she kept asking for more exorcisms, but she didn't see the flaw in that. She only saw the flaw in the medication, which speaks to the bias that she had in general and those core beliefs I was talking about before. So yeah, there it is. Thank you so much for going on this journey with me, Kathy. Oh, I feel like I need a, a, I need to go confess my sins or something. I mean, I think you do. So, well, once you stop the record button, I'll confess to you all my sins. 67 times, please. 67 <laughs> times. This has been an episode of terror talk. Thank you for listening. My name is Shannon and I'm Kathy sleep safe. Everyone.